Church, let me encourage you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, chapter 6 and verse 37 to 49 is our passage for today. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 49, and with God's help, if you'd give your attention to the reading of his word. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will he not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Well, still in our examination of Christ's Sermon on the Plain, we come now to this final stretch where the Lord Jesus brings together everything that he has been teaching. And really, it comes to a head here. He calls for a, a, a response, a final response on the part of his people. Will we act in obedience to his word? He brings us to this point of of self-examination in light of everything that he's brought to our attention. And he asks us to consider ourselves, really to, to consider ourselves in view of the final judgment. When that day comes and the Lord Jesus himself returns, what will the character of our lives say about our relationship with him? What will the way that, the, the, that our dealings with others uh, speak 
How will that speak to the nature of our relationship with Christ? Take into account the manner of your life, uh, the characteristics of the way that you live, the nature of your dealings with others. Is the the savor of the one who, who sent his son to die in your stead, engraved upon your heart? Can you see the Lord Jesus reflected in the way that you live, in the way that you respond to those that are around you? Do we reflect a pardoning, a generous, gracious God? in our dealings with others. That's the idea that Jesus is picking up here. Really, it follows right on the tale of verse 36. Are we merciful even as our Father in heaven is merciful? Often the, the chapter and heading, uh, chapter, the heading, headings, and chapter headings uh, obscure the connections between uh, what Jesus is saying here and That's true, I I think, in this particular section. The same thought is continued forward. Our disposition toward others is to reflect the Lord's dealings with us. God is merciful to us. We are to be merciful to others. Now, what does that look like? Born out. What does that look like in practice? Well, Jesus starts by saying two famous words judge not. Judge not. Almost certainly uh, the most misquoted, uh, misunderstood, misinterpreted, uh, misrepresented two words in the entire New Testament. It is a well-loved text for what it doesn't say, for what it does not teach. D.A. Carson said that a, a text without a context, is a pretext for a proof text. And that's exactly the case here. There is a broader context that we have to look at these two words in if we're going to understand them rightly. And we'll see that if we just keep reading. Of course, the Bible does require us to judge. It requires us to make judgments between what is right and what is wrong. It instructs God's people to discern between what is true and false, to to judge between true and false teachers, to exercise discipline uh, within the, the, the household of faith. The Bible says to test the spirits, to see whether they are from God. Uh, it says that we shall know them by their fruits. All of these ideas assume that there is a kind of judgment that is good. There is a kind of judgment that is good and right and that God's people are to be engaged in. But in a world where tolerance is is the, the highest value, where unity has to be achieved at all cost, even if that means stamping out uh, those that don't align with you, even if that means quieting those who aren't uh, as tolerant as you perceive yourself to be, it's easy to see the appeal of these two words, judge not. And yet, brothers and sisters, the fact that this verse is abused, the fact that these two words are so often 
misused in our world today does not allow us to ignore its clear teaching properly understood. What is Jesus getting at here? What is in view in this particular passage is an attitude that arises from our hearts that is marked by one of constant fault finding. We might draw a contrast between making judgments, righteous judgments, and then an attitude on the other hand of judgmentalism. What is in view here is one of constant fault fault finding, a spirit of censoriousness, someone with a critical spirit, someone who makes judgments that are rash, Sometimes this happens when you take a person's words, you take their their actions, and then you begin to assign the worst possible motives that could possibly be assigned to them. In other words, you judge by appearances. You judge on the basis of suspicion instead of, of facts. You jump to conclusions without having looked at things from, from all sides. One famous rabbi um, said, said this, judge not your neighbor until you come into his place. In other words, you cannot render righteous judgment about another person until you have all of the information. And until that's the case, you should refrain from judging. You should be careful to heed the words of what is written here, judge not Uh, Judgmentalism is often uh, marked by uh, those who who think that they've they've kind of got an inside angle on people. They see things about other people that other people don't see. And so they're always ready to condemn. You're always ready to, to be hasty in the judgments that you make about other people. Um, even sometimes going so far as doing what the Pharisees were sometimes guilty of and shutting people out of the kingdom. You size up their lives, you make your own determinations based on what you and your own sinful state can see, and you become judgmental. And it's the kind of judging I think we're all aware of that can destroy an, a relationship so very quickly. One of the most pernicious aspects of this kind of judgment, this kind of attitude that Jesus is warning us away from, is that the kind of judgment uh, he is describing here, and we're going to see this unpacked the more and more we, we, we go along, the, the judgments are levied without any sense of self-awareness when it comes to your own crimes and sins. It describes a person who elevates himself. Uh, Sometimes this comes out as someone who, um, they like to think of themselves as as sort of a a, a heresy hunter. They're always looking for errors in other people's lives, but not so much in their own life. They fancy themselves as, as a kind of spiritual watchdog, and they have everyone else's life under their purview, except for their own. They're blind to their own account. What happens when that is the case? What happens when we're always looking out and we're never looking in? 
we become so very self-righteous, don't we? Self-righteousness and hypocrisy begins to get a foothold in our life. It begins to characterize our, our dealings with everyone else. We begin to look down our noses at, a, at other people. So what is being described here is not righteous judgment, but judgmentalism. James talks about this in the book of James, chapter 4. James 4, verse 11 and 12. Do you not speak evil against one of your brothers? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, James is talking about the same thing. He's talking about merciless judging, hypocritical judging, the kind of judging that usurps the Lord's place, the one lawgiver and judge. Christ says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, he is not telling us here that we will never face the judgment of God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before the living God And yet Jesus is saying here, when we judge mercifully, we will be judged mercifully in return. We are reflecting then who we belong to as sons of the living God. God will judge us graciously. With the judgment you pronounce, Jesus said, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, the Lord has done a work in the hearts of his people so that we have come to see at the cross the judgment we deserve has fallen on another. It's fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was crucified between two criminals. He died on the cross in accordance with the scriptures. He made peace by the blood of the cross. We are those who can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is telling us, let that reality, let that kind of truth inform the way that you deal with others. Let those gospel truths seep into your heart and transform the way that you relate to the most difficult ones in your life. Jesus is not saying that everyone who does evil against you should be allowed to walk free. He isn't saying that judgments should never be made, but to be on guard against this harsh, critical, pharisaical, hypocritical spirit. Instead, what should we do? We should forgive. We should be ready to forgive, and it will be forgiven you. Give, and it will be forget, and 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 it will be given to you. You remember the parable of the the unforgiving servant. 
Peter had just uh, asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter was thinking in the moment that he was a pretty generous man. As many as seven times. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And he said that the kingdom of God could be likened to this king that, that wanted to, to settle accounts. And so he, he goes out and he calls his servants to, to reckon up with him. And first he goes and he, and he finds this man who owes him 10,000 talents. And the man cannot pay. And so the master does what? He orders the man to be sold, along with all of his household, along with his wife and his children, everything that he has to his name. And the servant falls on his knees. He pleads with the master. He says, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And the master did that. He had pity. He showed compassion on this man who had owed him so very much. And he forgave the man's debt. But then that same servant, he goes out into the field and he finds another one of uh, his fellow servants, a man who owed him a hundred denarii, about a day's worth of wages. The numbers here are intentionally hyperbolic, but just for uh, the sake of comparison, you're looking at something like a 73 million to one kind of ratio. One day's worth of wages compared to 200,000 years worth of pay. Just an unimaginable sum. Something you, you, you could never even conceive of. Well, what did this man do who had, been, who had been forgiven of his debt? He seizes his fellow servant. He begins to choke him and he says, pay me what you owe. Give to me what's, what's coming to me, what I deserve. The man says the very same thing that this man had just uttered. He said, have patience with me. Have pity on me. Show compassion toward me. And the servant refuses. How does Jesus end the parable? The master summons the man. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you. That's what Christ is telling us here as his people. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. He loves much. He is, he's ready to forgive. He's, he's ready to give out of what God has given him. Every true believer rejoices to say, where sin abounds, grace did abound all the more. Now, is that shaping the way that you relate to those around you? Is that shaping the way that you relate to those even in your own household? God is gracious and forgiving. He doesn't judge or condemn those that come to him, that confess their sin. He pardons. He shows mercy. And he does so, consider this, church, he does so knowing all of the dark recesses of our hearts. We're talking about the one who knows all things, who searches the heart, who tests us. He knows the things about you that you have never told anyone else. 
and yet he is ready to forgive. He shows mercy and kindness to you. Now, how much more ought that kindness and generosity and compassion uh, be, be reflected in our own lives toward others? We can only see uh, imperfectly, at best, at very best, as we look at one another. And you see the promise here, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be put into your lap. The image here is, is of someone who, they're going to get their, their grain filled, and they've got their outer garment, their cloak, uh, tied around their waist by their belt, and at the top here, it forms a, a kind of pouch, a kind of pocket, uh, where, where they can uh, receive their, their, their fill of grain, and they're, they're seated on the ground. They've got this kind of sack here, and God is pouring out his blessing, good measure. It's not a meager outpouring. It's a good measure. Press down every corner of that, of that, that bag is being filled, shaken together. You're, tr- you're seeing how much you can get uh, filled into, into that container. It's running over. It's heaped up. It's, it's spilling over. That is God's encouragement to you. Give, and it will be given to you. Given, it will be given to you. Now, returning to this, this note of warning, it says that he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit. Now the lesson here is obvious. You've got one blind man and he is fumbling around. He doesn't know where he's going. He cannot see the way forward. And another blind man uh, says to himself, you know what? I think I'll come to his aid. I'm just the sort of person that, that can serve him well here in this sort of situation. And so he rushes in. You see that the whole proposition is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And they both face disaster at the end. They both fall into the pit together. Now, what does that mean as it relates to our text? How does the parable that that Jesus uh, provides to his disciples here help to elucidate on uh, what comes before? He's saying that those who have this, this judgmental, Critical spirit may be likened to the blind guide. They cannot see the way forward. They are not prepared to to help others. Now, of course, this is precisely the problem in that spiritual blindness is the kind of condition you're not aware of in your life. It's the sort of condition you're oblivious to when you're spiritually blind. There's an inherent delusion to the whole enterprise unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens up our hearts, gives us spiritual eyes to to see what we cannot see on our own. And he uses texts just like this, praise God. This is why we need words of warning like this to prick our hearts, to convict us of sin, to alert us to the kind of danger that we are in. This is, 
exactly the kind of situation that David was in in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember how the Lord had so richly blessed uh, King David. He had uh, poured out so many wonderful things upon his head and he had the the, the throne and his household and his, his riches, and yet David went after the one thing that wasn't his to have. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, he, he murdered her husband Uriah. He tried to have the whole thing covered up. Well, the Lord came to him in his persevering, uh, chastising love. He sent Nathan the prophet, and he told him a parable. I want to read it to you, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 and 6, 1 to 6. Nathan told David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And when he brought it up, it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You remember Nathan's words to David. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. David could see in another what was oblivious to him in his own heart. He knew how other people should live. He knew what sort of uh, condemnation they should face, but he was blind when it came to his own estate. He was a blind guide, unable to see. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, beloved, this, this is a double warning. It is a warning uh, first uh, to, to people like yourselves, really to all of us, what kinds of teachers do we sit under? Be careful who you listen to. Especially, though, in this context, it is a warning to would-be teachers, to those who will give an account. Are we marked by spiritual hypocrisy? Are we marked by judgmentalism? Are we blind guides? Who are we to lead others, if that is the case? Now, look at verse 41. This is where... The rubber really meets the road. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Now again, the contrast is obvious. What in the world are you doing? carrying around this great big moat hanging out of your eye and yet at the same time you're worried about this little speck in your brother's eye. Something so minor, so 
insignificant, when you yourself have this giant uh, load-bearing beam hanging out of your own eye. It's the sort of thing that, that I imagine would have gotten a laugh out of his listeners when it was first, first said. I think it probably would have made many blush with shame also. Now, humor can be helpful uh, for us, used appropriately in, in that way, and that it, it, it breaks down our, our defenses and it can help us to to see ourselves as, as we really are, to hear the truth. So Christ is speaking to those who see so clearly the sins of others, or so they think, but they never stop for a minute to consider that of their own. The emphasis they give on evaluating the lives of others is totally out of proportion with the concern they have for, the, for their own. So what is the counsel that he gives what, what kind of counsel do we need to be following as people who often find ourselves in this position? I exhort you to put this into practice even now as you think about applying this and think about your own estate. What is the counsel he gives? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. So you have here a call to, to circumspection. It is a call to, to self-examination, to searchings of your heart. It is a call away from spiritual pride and to humility. To putting your, your own heart, not anybody else's, but your own life under the scrutiny of the word of God. You let the Spirit go to work on your own life. Are we as concerned with the sins of others as we are with our own? Do we take as much care with our own hearts as we do with others? Are we as attentive to the condition of our own souls as we are with that of others? Do we find ourselves bewailing our failures as much as we do other people's. Get the log out of your eye first, Jesus says, and then you will actually be in a position where you can help your brother. If there is something there, if there is really something there where he needs you to come alongside him, then you'll be in a position where you can be of spiritual good to him, where you can actually serve him well. But the only way we'll ever get to that place is by first looking ourselves in the mirror, asking for the grace of God to see ourselves rightly, dealing with our own sin, uh, repenting of it, asking ourselves, what is my motivation in going to this other person in the first place? Dealing with our own hearts first. Now you have the proper perspective. Now you can see yourself clearly and you can be of spiritual service in the lives of those around you. So Jesus is not forbidding absolutely all judging. Loving others doesn't mean that we leave off 
the cause for truth altogether. The same Christ who spoke these words inspired the Apostle Paul to write, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? Galatians 6, 1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But then listen to how uh, the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see how the same dynamic is there as with Christ's words? You see how the same kind of self-awareness and heedfulness to your own estate is called for both by Paul as it is by Christ. Now, dear ones, how do you take the log out of your eye. I want, you, I want you to see the logic here, the biblical logic, and where Christ takes us, the connection that he draws in the verses that follow. First, notice the principle that he lays down in verse 43, and this is very important. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Every child can understand what Jesus is saying here. However much we may want to deny its implications for our lives, we can understand what Jesus is saying here. There is an undeniable, unavoidable consistency between the nature of a thing and what it produces, between what is within and what is without. You look at the fruit that you get off of a tree, and you know what kind of tree it is. You know what kind of tree it is. It is that simple. Now, if you look at verse 45, you have that agricultural lesson applied to the saints of God. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see what Jesus is saying there. The treasure of of your heart, it can be likened to the tree. What springs forth is the fruit. Now, where can the fruit of our lives be be seen? Where do we discover that? In the words that we speak. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is an unavoidable consistency there between what comes out of our mouths and the inner man. Within the inner man, within the heart, you have the storehouse. You have all of your loves, all of your values, your thoughts, your inclinations, your affections, your attitudes, your treasures, your passions, your pursuits your motivations, all of the things that you desire from which is born the fruit of your lips. Everything you have ever said has come from here. It's come from the inner man. It's the, con- the control center of the life. It is not your circumstances. It's not externals. It's not the people around you. It's not your outside situation. It's what is within. Everything we say and do is a reflection of the inner man. Jesus is getting to the root of the matter. You you see the connection that he is drawing now. 
when we are judgmental, when we sinfully condemn, when we refuse to to forgive and instead we choose to, to keep a record of wrongs, for example, all of these things are a reflection of the heart. They all come from within. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And so how do you take the log out of your eye? Well, you begin by looking at the fruit of your life. You begin by looking at the fruit your life is bearing. Look at what Jesus, is, what Jesus says in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do, and not do what I tell you? So he's, he's laid down the principle. He said there is an organic connection between the condition of our hearts and the words that we speak, the actions that we take. Now, we have found ourselves set up, brothers and sisters. What do we discover about ourselves? What do we see now? What words do we speak? What has been revealed about us as we think about our own lives? What can be known now about the the condition of our heart? J.C. Ryle says this, he says, let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart. And that although men are living wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Maybe you have heard it said or maybe you have uh, found yourself saying it before. You can't know what's in my heart. You can't see my heart. That is true on one level. But it's a half-truth. It does not tell the whole story. We do not always know what another person's motivations are for why they do the things that they do. But we are always revealing what's on the inside. By the way we live, by the way we conduct our lives, by the way that we relate to one another, we are always revealing what's on the inside. And so Jesus zeroes in on the, the obvious inconsistency that he, the, that he observes in some of his listeners when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see, the word Lord is a loaded term. It speaks of submission. It speaks of allegiance. It speaks, speaks of commitment and obedience. Lordship of necessity means that we bow our knee before him. It means that we submit our lives to the commands of our Savior. It means you follow him. And what's remarkable about this passage is that apparently even at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, you already had some that professed They were Christ's disciples. They claimed him as Lord, but their lives were indistinguishable from those that weren't his disciples. And Christ is flabbergasted by it all. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, and aren't doing the things that I say? He's getting at the problem of nominal Christianity. Young people, nominal 
We're talking about in name only. Why do you keep saying, Lord, Lord, but you aren't doing the things that I say? He's saying an empty profession springing from our lips is nothing. Now, he goes on to describe two kinds of people. I want you to notice this. They both call themselves Christians. They both profess the faith. You find the first in verse 47 and 8. Now here's a man, and he comes, and he hears Christ's word, and he does them. Jesus says he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Church, let those words resound in your ears. It could not be shaken. What is that attributed to? It's laid on a foundation. What is the foundation? It's the doing of the word. It's the attendance to the commands of Christ. We are not talking here about the basis of our salvation. We aren't talking about the grounds of our relationship with with God. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is a wonderful truth, but it's not the image that the foundation spoken of in this text uh, is, is speaking to. There are other passages that use that image in that way, but not here. The foundation in this analogy points to the doing of the word. The doing of the word. It speaks of obedience. So hold that in your mind, if you will. Now we get to the second group in verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the, on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. There you have the contrast. There is still a house, but you have a builder who cannot be troubled with digging down deep and getting to the foundation. Notice this. You have two groups. They are represented by two builders, and they have so much in common. They hear the same thing. The teaching is the same. The house uh, may look essentially the same. Their lives are uh, tidy and religious, perhaps. The contrast here is not between the religious and the irreligious. Uh, These are, are both two groups of people. They both lift up their voices. They both say, Lord, to Jesus. They aren't like some, some people, some Uh, nominal Christians who like to keep their religion under wraps. They don't want anyone to know uh, their their profession. No, Uh, these profess faith openly. They've come, they've heard, they've voluntarily attached themselves to Christ. Lord, Lord is the confession of the whole lot, but you see the contradiction. You see the contradiction between the one group and the other. One is a Christian in name only, The claim he makes when he says, Lord, Lord, is a false claim. What makes it false? He does not do what Jesus says. 
He doesn't do what Christ says. He keeps up appearances. He is numbered among Jesus' disciples just by virtue of his profession, but he does not possess a transformed life. He does not possess an increasingly sanctified life that all true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are always characterized by. He has a form of godliness, but he denies the power thereof. And for all of his professed faith, for all of his supposed devotion, his life, the fruit of his life, tells a different story. So this is a very piercing, a penetrating passage, brothers and sisters. A man can go around, he can spend his whole life saying, Jesus is my Lord, Lord, Lord. He can know Jesus' commandments. He can have them memorized. He can teach other people his commandments. But if he doesn't do them, his house has no foundation. And it's only when the storm comes that the difference is really exposed. Both houses experience this uh, natural disaster at the end that reveals the presence or the absence of a foundation. Both groups experience a time of ultimate testing, just as we will when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So again, church, how do you take the log out of your own eye? You look at the fruit of your life. You look at the abundance of your heart, what the mouth speaks, your dealings with others. You look at your obedience or lack thereof to the commands of God. Recognizing that our doing is a reflection of the inner man, that is so helpful. Uh, It is helpful in coming to a proper biblical understanding of what self-examination really calls for and what it doesn't, you do not have to give yourself over to some kind of morbid introspection. You simply look without. You can look at your words. You look at your deeds. You look at your actions. You discover the attitude of the heart by looking at the fruit your life has produced you consider the deeds of the, the flesh. Perhaps that, that means that you begin to confess all of your, your failures to keep the law of God. You come to Christ. You receive his mercy. You resolve to do what Christ has commanded you by his grace, not in your own strength, but in the strength that he supplies. And you will be like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when the flood arose the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built we can never merit eternal life by our works we could never do enough to earn right standing with the lord but insofar as we rest in the merits of christ and not in ourselves, we are going to be marked by a life that follows after Jesus Christ, that responds in the obedience of faith. We're not talking about the grounds of our justification, our standing with God, 
but, with, but about what flows out of that, what always flows out of that living relationship. So what is going to transform your life? What's going to transform a church or a family or a community? People who confess with their mouths, Jesus is Lord, who believe in their hearts, God raised him from the grave, but also who go on and following hard after him by the grace of God. Let's pray together. God of grace, we are indeed brought back to our need of your all-sufficient grace today. God, we need your help so much that we might walk in your commands. Lord, we want to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. We want to be fully pleasing to you. And we have discovered over and over again in our folly that apart from you, we really can do nothing. We have no hope of walking in obedience to your word apart from your empowering spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. I pray that you would strengthen us with your grace. God, we confess our sin. Lord, we confess our many failures to be doers of the word. Lord, I I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as we really are. That you would forgive our hypocrisy and our self-righteousness. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgression. Give us clean hearts, O God. Renew right spirits within us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.